Hey fellow NDE fans, we have some exciting things coming up on the other side, but we could really use your help and support to keep going with this channel. Our outreach team works around the clock, making sure to bring you the best NDE stories that we can find. But now we're looking to expand into other countries to get near-death experiences from around the globe. However, we need your help and support to make this happen. This is why we're introducing our YouTube membership program. Get access to exclusive ad-free episodes that haven't been on YouTube. Watch and participate in live Q&As with the guests. Engage directly with us and NDEers. Participate in giveaways and live events. And most importantly, you will ensure our channel's continuous efforts to seek out and uncover these important experiences worldwide. Support us by hitting the Join Now button below. Thank you for your continued viewership and support. Your help will make a difference, and we look forward to building our community together with you. Hello, my name is Bruce Vanetta. I live in Wisconsin. I run a nonprofit organization called Sweetbread Ministries. We started this organization January 1st, 2008, after I had a, a horrible work accident where a semi-truck fell on top of my body. Ended up having an out-of-body or near-death experience. And uh, it was such impactful thing that happened to me that we felt so strongly about it that we ended up starting this ministry, Sweetbread Ministries. And I travel around the country, other countries as well. And I share this testimony about what happened. I want to continue to be able to share this testimony with as many people as I can, uh, just because I want, there's a lot of people that have questions about what happens when we die. There's a lot of people that are afraid of dying. There are a lot of people that wonder, is God real? Is heaven real? Is hell real? All these questions that we have here as humans stuck on this earth. And I just want to share my experience so that give some things for people to think about. So my accident that I'm going to talk about actually happened in 2006. So it's been quite a few years. I owned a business where I traveled around the state of Wisconsin doing on-site diesel repair. I specialized in runability and overhaul on diesel engines that, that couldn't be brought into a facility repair shop that somebody has to go on-site to do the repair work. So I had a service truck with all of my tools on the truck and I would just go from place to place. So one day I might be working on a generator at a hospital and the next day I could be working on a farmer field on a diesel irrigation pump. The next day I could be working in a construction site on a piece of construction equipment that has a diesel engine. Basically anywhere where there's diesel engines that need to get worked on, I would get called and brought out to those places and fix those engines. So I grew up uh, working in a diesel repair shop. My dad owned a diesel repair shop. Um, when I share this testimony, a lot of times people hear about the angels and the prayer and the answer for prayer and all this stuff. And they think that I must have come from some super religious background or some, you know, super spiritual family. And the truth is I did not come from a super spiritual family. In fact, people are usually pretty surprised when they hear my background. And just to touch on it, I came from a family where my mom and dad both would have said they believed in God, but we didn't regularly attend church ever. Basically, the only time we would ever go to church would be at Christmas or Easter, something like that. And we didn't even go every Christmas or Easter. So growing up, I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional home, drugs, alcohol, physical abuse, verbal abuse. My parents were both severely hurt and wounded as children, different types of abuse and traumas. So they ended up getting married, uh, having kids. And so, uh, bringing their their own heartaches and griefs and pains into the marriage. The family I grew up in was, uh, again, uh, 
as a lot of people, a lot of hurt in our home, a lot of dysfunction. So I grew up in that atmosphere. Again, my dad owned a diesel repair shop, so I grew up working on diesels. I had, you know, just to uh, back up a little bit, I had an experience as a child where someone told me about God and told me that God was real. And it wasn't my parents, it was, it was another person. And basically, on a, I was, um, as a five-year-old, being repeatedly sexually abused by some babysitters. And it was during that time that I heard about this Jesus that they were talking about. This person was telling me about Jesus, and um, I was very skeptic. And bottom line, I didn't believe the story about Jesus. Fast forward several months, a super bad night in my life was happening, um, and I just called out and I said, Jesus, if you're real, uh, I want you to come and hug me like those kids in that story. The person who told me a story from the Bible where Jesus is in the area and parents are bringing their children to have them hug them. The disciples get mad and they tell the parents to get the kids out of there. Jesus has more important things to do than hanging around with kids. And Jesus rebukes his disciples, says, let the children come on to me. So somebody told me that story as a five-year-old. I didn't really believe the story because they they basically said that Jesus loves kids so much that he doesn't let bad things happen. And this is at a time where I'm being repeatedly molested. So I didn't believe the story. Fast forward several months, a super bad night is happening. And I simply said in the middle of uh, my fear and <laughs> grief, pain, um, feeling dirty in the middle of all this, I called out one night and I said, Jesus, if you're real, then prove it. Hug me like you did the kids in the story. So as a five-year-old, I had an experience where I believe Jesus hugged me. I didn't tell anybody that it happened. I kept it completely myself actually for like 20 years. Um, but for me, that was the basis of knowing in the back of my head when I said, Jesus, if you're real, hug me. And I got a hug, even though uh, we didn't attend church regularly, even though you know, I was the kid in school, constantly getting in trouble, getting kicked off the school bus, getting kicked out of school, involved with drugs and alcohol at an early age. Even though I was that troubled child, I still in the back of my head believed and still believe that Jesus was real because of that experience as a five-year-old. So now fast forward, I'm in my mid-30s. I own a very successful business doing on-site diesel repair. I was called to do a diesel repair job on a Peterbilt is the brand logging truck at a logging business facility about an hour south of here where we live. I worked on the truck Tuesday, the 4th, November 14th, 15th, 16th. The 16th was the day of my accident. Uh, we basically finished putting the truck back together that day on the 16th. I was working with the mechanic who worked at that logging company. Typically, when I uh, ran that business, anytime I was working on a job site, lots of times, if they had their own mechanics, they would put their mechanic with me to make the job go faster. So that's what was happening. I was working with this other mechanic. And uh, we again, we worked on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We got to the end of the job in order to test the repair. His name was Leonard. I said to Leonard, go ahead and start it up. I don't need the truck running. At this point, we wanted to start the truck to test the repair to make sure that we'd fix the leak. So I had him jump up inside the truck. The truck is running maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. I'm putting my tools away. It's not leaking. We had verified that our repair was good. The truck was completely back together except for two things. The passenger side front wheel was removed and the engine mounted air cleaner was still off. Leonard, the other mechanic who worked at this logging camp, this facility, he's going to come back the next day. He's going to put the passenger side front wheel back on. He's going to put the engine mounted air cleaner back on. 
So the truck is running. There's no leak. I'm putting my last tools away. When Leonard walks up, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, before you go, would you take a look at one more thing? He said, I've got a dirty spot on the front of the engine. Caterpillar engines are, are yellow engines. And so he said, I've got this big black dirty spot on the front of the engine. He said he, he could wipe it off, clean it down. And within you know weeks or a small amount of time, the dirty spot would come back. So he knew that the engine was had another leak. It was seeping oil somewhere. And he wanted me to diagnose that leak. When he asked me if I would do that, I remember looking up at the clock and I saw that it said 6.10 p.m. I'd left my house that morning at 6 a.m., drove an hour to get to the job site, uh, showing up on site at 7 a.m. So at the point that I'm getting ready to leave at 6.10, I'm already over. Even if I left right then, it's already going to be a 13-hour day. So I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to go home and eat supper, go to bed. I was looking at the clock, mulling it over before I answered him. And that's when he said to me, look, you don't have to fix it. Just diagnose it. Just figure out where it's coming from. Schedule you to come back at a later time to, to repair it, order parts, what do you have to do? He said, maybe it's going to be something simple and you can point to it. It'll be something that I can tighten up, he said, or whatever. Just diagnose the problem. So I said, okay, I'll diagnose it. Uh, for those watching, if you were to stand in front of a big class eight truck, this a class eight truck is as big as semi truck as you're going to see going up and down the highways. That's what this particular logging truck was a big class eight logging truck on these big trucks. If you were to get in the front of the truck, get on your knees and look underneath the front bumper from the front of the truck towards the back. What you'd see is the lowest thing to the ground on these trucks is the front axle. So there's a big steel I-beam that goes from the left side to the right side in between the two wheels. It drops down on each side. So here's the two front wheels and that, that beam, that steel I-beam just goes from one side of the truck to the other side. It carries on this truck five to six tons of weight on the two front wheels. So 10 to 12,000 pounds of weight on the two front tires. Leonard has replaced a steel 20-ton capacity a bottle jack underneath the passenger side of that big steel I-beam. He's jacked it up, removed that passenger side wheel. So the truck has been the front axle has been jacked up and the wheel's been removed. It's been on the jack at this point for three days. The engine has now been running 15 or 20 minutes. And I looked underneath the truck before I went underneath it, and I saw that he had placed a jack underneath the jacket up, but there was no blocking, no jack stands, no safety equipment. Typically, what you would do is you would jack something up with the jack, and jacks are lifting devices. You would then let the weight off of the jack onto a jack stand or a block, some type of safety equipment so that it's more uh, secure. Leonard had not done that. He just jacked it up. All the weight was on the jack. I looked underneath. And I saw that it was on a jack. There was no jack stand. There was no safety equipment. I made the choice, the decision at that point to go underneath the vehicle anyway. I, it's been on there for three days. It's been running 15, 20 minutes. There's been no problem. So there's a, a tool that mechanics use to go underneath vehicles called a creeper. And the thing with tools is there's expensive tools and then there's cheap tools. And I say all the time that cheap tools have made uh, been the reason for a lot of bad words being said. Cheap tools are really very aggravating to work with. They don't do the job right. They often break. Again, they're just very, very aggravating. And a, a cheap creeper is extremely aggravating as a mechanic because uh, just one of a few things, cheap creepers tend to have either very small wheels. And the problem with a very small wheel creeper, when you try to roll underneath the vehicle, every garage floor has cracks. Every garage floor has cuts in it. Every garage floor has you know pebbles of little rocks, sand, and cheap creepers don't want to roll over the, that debris or that stuff that gets stuck. So again, it's very aggravating because you want to 
you want to move and they don't want to move. Other cheap creepers have steel wheels that are at angle. You want to go left, they go right, they'll pinch you. I mean, again, they're just, they're really aggravating to use a cheap creeper. So I looked at the creeper that he had just rolled out from underneath. And I was thinking about getting on his creeper and going to the truck, but I saw that it was plastic, hollow core, had little small wheels, just a total piece of junk. And I didn't want to get on it. I didn't want it to, to frustrate me. So I looked in the back of my truck. Here's my creeper that's all strapped down. So it would have taken more time for me to get in my truck, unstrap my creeper to get to get it out going to this vehicle. So I just made the choice to get on his little piece of junk creeper. So I get on this plastic hollow cord creeper. I go underneath the front bumper feet first. I roll underneath the truck. And now I'm laying underneath that axle that's got the 10 to 12,000 pounds of weight on it, held up by a jack on my left hand or passenger side of the truck because I'm on my back where I stopped. The jack is over here on my left-hand side and the axle is maybe just an inch or two above my belly button going across the middle of the soft part of my belly, pretty much from the bottom of my ribs to the top of my pelvic, basically, because that's about how wide that deep or wide that axle is. So I'm laying at the truck. I'm looking at the bottom of the engine, looking at the dirty spot. And I came up with an idea what I thought it probably was. I knew at this point that our other leak, it's been running, it's not leaking. We verified that our repair is good. So from laying underneath the truck, I yell at the Leonard, the other mechanic. I say, Leonard, shut it off. I don't need it running to diagnose this other leak. So he got up inside the truck to shut the engine off. This particular truck has what's called air suspension. So there's airbags for the suspension in the back of the truck and on the cab. So when he got up inside the truck, the whole truck kind of shifted and rocked, which would be normal because of the airbag suspension. When he did, as I'm laying underneath the truck, directly again underneath the center line of the truck, underneath the engine with the axle going across my belly, just above me, when he got in the truck and it moved and it shifted because of the airbags, I saw some other movement in the peripheral vision of my left eye over here. And I turned my head to the left side, to the passenger side of the truck, just in time to see that when Leonard had gotten in the truck and everything had shifted and the axle had shifted, the jack had slipped out and it was actually teetering and rocking underneath the axle, just barely hanging on. It slipped all the way up to the edge. And before I could think or blink or do anything, the jack shot out like a rocket. And this five to six tons of weight, this 10 to 12,000 pounds of steel of the front of the weight of the front of the truck, when the jack slipped out, that that big steel I-beam came down and slammed the cement. So if you can imagine 10, 12,000 pounds of steel dropping, you know, I don't know, eight inches, 10, 10 inches, whatever it was, to the cement and just this loud explosion noise when the steel hit the cement. And on impact, when that basically the axle fell through the middle of my body like a blunt guillotine, but because the driver's side wheel is still connected, that held up the driver's side, but because the passenger side wheel is off, it allowed the passenger side of the truck to fall to the ground in this garage, fall the cement. And when it did, it, the axle fell through the middle of my body, again, crushing me like a blunt guillotine. On impact, blood shot out of my body, out of my mouth from the inside out. And so this big blob of blood hits the cement. And when it came out of my mouth and I realized in that moment what had happened, I called out to Jesus and I said, Lord, help me. I'm positive the reason why I did that was because, as I said, as a five-year-old, I called out and said, Jesus, if you're real, hug me. And he did. And for me, that had cemented in my mind that he was real, even though I had uh, went through a lot of bad things in my life. I knew that I knew that I knew that I had gotten that hug and I'd felt that love. And so when the truck followed me, I just called out. And I said, Lord, help me. Jesus, help me. I, I remember saying it two times. I don't know. Apparently, I 
wanted to make sure in case he didn't hear me the first time or something silly. I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, Lord, help me again the second time. When I looked down, now the truck has fallen through me. It's on the cement over here, the axle is. When I looked down on the left side of my body, there was about an inch of space between the bottom of the axle and the cement. So I know that my body was approximately an inch thick. Plus, I'm on top of a creeper. So the plastic holocore creeper, thank God I was on that. It collapsed to nothing. It was like flat. It was There was nothing there. And I looked to the right side of my body. And between the bottom, the axle, and the cement was maybe two inches of space. So I was probably double the thickness on the right side. In the middle of my body where my spine is, I don't have a belly button anymore. But straight through from where my belly button used to be to my back is my L4, L5 vertebrae. Both my L5 L4 vertebrae were both, according to the radiology report, spider cracked and D-shaped. So I was thinner than my spine, if you can picture that. In the middle of my body, I was thinner than my spine, about an inch thick on the left side of my body, about two inches thick on the right side of my body. And it was all the way across from the bottom of my ribs to my pelvic. So flat across the middle of my body when this truck fell on me. I can't even tell you how bad the pain was. The pain was off the charts. So I'm underneath the truck. The engine is still running. The jack slipped before he could shut the engine off. So the truck has me pinned to the cement. It's got my vertebrae broken and crushed, pinned to the cement. Everything, you know, crushed inside my body, as you can imagine. So Leonard got out of the truck without shutting the engine off. The bumper behind my head is, is on the passenger side. It's touching the ground. The passenger side fuel tank is caved in. But there's a gap just back here behind my head between the, the space between the bottom of the bumper and the ground. So I'm looking back out from underneath, just from underneath the front bumper, out from underneath the front of the truck. Leonard is looking at me from underneath that gap. So our eyes are locked. I'm looking over my right shoulder at him. And he's, you know, on his knees looking underneath the truck at me. And his eyes were great big. And he went into shock when he saw my body was crushed in half. And he just froze. And it seemed like forever. And so I started saying, Leonard, I was begging him, mumbling. I was saying, Leonard, please call 911. I remember I kept saying it over and over, please call 911. And he was just frozen with his eyes just staring at me. I could tell there was a look of fear, this look of utter poor and shock on his face because my body's crushed in half. But also guilt because he had jacked up the truck and not used the safety equipment. It's a person that I've known since I was, you know, at that point for at least 20 years, I knew him, a family friend. He felt bad. He felt guilty. He froze up. He wanted the shock. So I'm saying, please call 911. Seemed like forever. Finally, he shook out of it. He called the 911. It's in the middle of nowhere, as you can imagine, a volunteer fire department. They, uh, this is 2006. It's before smartphones. So these guys, you know, maybe flip phones and pagers are going off, whatever. So he gets off. I hear him on the phone screaming, you know, please send somebody truck is falling on someone crushed a man in half crushed a guy in half something along those lines he said he gets off the phone he goes and gets the jack he's gonna try and get the truck off of my body and i i'm begging him to shut the engine off he never did shut the engine off because the jack slipped before he could shut the engine off so i'm begging him to shut the engine off he shut the engine off he went and got the jack now he's trying to figure out how he's going to get the truck off of me he couldn't put the jack underneath the axle because the axle is literally on cement at this point so instead he put the jack as i'm laying on my back looking over to my left hand side where the passenger side of the the truck is the axle goes over and is attached to a big curved leaf spring that's a big arched spring that attaches at the, at the frame at the top and back here at the frame at the bottom but in the middle on the bottom 
attaches that axle. So again, because the axle is now in the cement, and he couldn't put the jack underneath it. The closest thing to that is he put it underneath that big curved leaf spring. Now, for those of you who are technical, you can understand what I'm saying. You, you don't want to jack something up on a curve. You want to jack something up with a jack on a piece of you know flat so that it goes up. But instead, he jacked it up on this curved leaf spring, and the jack is just going to slip and go up the arch of that spring. So I'm begging him not to jack it up there because I knew the jack was just going to slip. And as I'm begging him not to jack it up, he's telling me it's the only place he's got. This, it's all he could do. So he's pumping the handle of the jack. The jack is slipping down the, the curve of the arch of the spring and finally it caught just barely, barely, barely caught. So now it's going up as he's jacking. It's going up very slowly. Each little pump of the jack it's making the truck go up. So finally he gets the truck off of my body. The jack is barely, barely hanging on. Now I'm able to see my whole body top to bottom for the first time because when the truck had fallen through me, when the, when the axle had literally fallen through the middle of my belly, it's so deep. It's just not just wide, deep front to back. It's also tall. So it's so tall that when it fell through the, my body, all I could see was from my basically from the bottom of my ribs up. I couldn't see the lower half of my body. I could just see that big piece of steel that had fallen through the middle of me with a little gap of air underneath on each side. So now he jacks the truck up off my body. And the very first thing that happened was this incredible weakness. So I'm in immense pain. But once he gets the, the axle off my body, this incredible weakness takes over. We found out later the reason why the weakness um, happened was because I had five places that major arteries were completely severed. And as long as the axle was on top of my body, it had all those arteries and veins, I mean, basically pinched off. But as soon as he jacked the truck up off my body, now I'm able to free bleed and all those arteries and veins are just pumping out blood internally bleeding inside my body. So that's where the weakness came from. We found out later. So I've got this horrible pain. Now this incredible weakness comes. I looked down and the craziest thing was, so I've got a work uniform at that point, the mechanics uniform, the name of my company, Bruce's mobile service on a patch on one side, you know, whatever, a couple of pockets, but now that he's jacked the truck up off my body, when I looked down at my work uniform laying underneath the truck, what I saw was that my work uniform went to the edge of my ribs, went straight back, followed along my spine, and came back up in my pelvic. So I had this ridiculous flak spot that went all the way from the bottom of my ribs to the top of my pelvis. And it was so surreal. Um, it was so far from anything that I'd ever seen, witnessed in reality, I couldn't make, my brain couldn't make sense of seeing that flat spot like that. And the only thing that I could compare it to, the only frame of reference that I had mentally compared to, as crazy as it sounds, was cartoons from a child. When the rock falls on Wiley Coyote, he's flat like a pancake, or the Acme truck drives over the middle of him, he's got that flat spot in the middle. That literally was what I was thinking of Laying out the truck, looking at my body with the flat spot was it was cartoonish, and that there's no way anybody in the world could be alive and literally have their body crushed in the middle flat like that. So I see my body crushed flat, the pain is off the charts, the weakness is taking over. I'm going into shock as I'm bleeding out internally. My heart is racing, I'm freaking out. I'm afraid the jack is gonna slip and it's just gonna fall on my body again. So I'm begging Leonard to get me off from the truck. Most people have been told you don't want to move somebody with a back injury. Obviously, my back is broken. You could see I've got a big flat spot, so he wouldn't touch me. So I'm begging him to, to 
you know, to grab the top of the creeper and to pull me out from the truck, but he wouldn't do it. So I panicked. I reached back and I was able to grab the bottom of the, the front bumper just here back behind my head. So even though the creeper is, you know, flat, crushed in the middle with my body, there's wheels on each end, little plastic wheels on each end. When I grabbed the bottom of that, that bumper, it took everything I had, but I was able to drag my body out again because I'm in shock and I'm freaking out. I, I was able to drag my body out far enough to that now that my basically my shoulders, my head and shoulders are now sticking out from underneath the front bumper and the rest of my body is still underneath the truck. I looked underneath the truck and that's when I saw that the axle is now above the lower part of my legs. So if the jack does slip, which I was afraid it was going to slip and the truck falls again, it's going to fall on my legs and break my legs. So I, I put my palms on the, on the bumper and I thought if I could do one more push, I could get my body out far enough that if the jack slipped, it would just fall in the cement and miss my legs. And it was at that point, as I was trying to do that second push, that my body began to shake uncontrollably. Those words don't do it justice. I wasn't trembling. I was shaking like a leaf, like uncontrollably shaking. And I fixated for some reason on my right bicep. You know, my hands were against the bumper trying to do that second push. And I was looking at this arm and I was watching my bicep just crazy jumping up and down my whole arm was shaking and it was really scaring me i had a lot of upper body strength i could have easily done you know a lot of pull-ups and i couldn't even do this it wasn't my whole body weight and i couldn't even do the second push which was really scaring me and it was right then that i realized the realization hit me that i couldn't breathe when the truck had fallen on me it had collapsed the bottoms of my lungs and in the trauma and the pain and all the craziness the moment I didn't realize until I dragged myself out that first and I tried to do that second push that I couldn't breathe. And it was when I was trying to do that second push that I realized that I couldn't breathe. And I'm literally, if you've ever seen this happen or had this happen to someone, to have this happen to yourself, you know what I'm saying, where there's literally like this sucking in, but not being able to get any air, which was horrifying. And my body's shaking and I realize I can't do it. I don't have the strength. I can't do the push. I'm too weak. And I can't get any air in. And it was right then that like the first two volunteer fire department guys got there. And they grabbed my arms. They're trying to help me. I guess apparently, again, we found out later. The reason why they're moving my arms is to try to manipulate my diaphragm to try and manipulate the to get the diaphragm away from the lungs to help me to, to be able to breathe. But it wasn't working. I'm still just straining to breathe, trying to take that next breath. My heart is just racing. And it was crazy because what happened next, I literally heard my heart stop and it sounded like shutting engine off when you have a big diesel engine or a big engine and you're running it and you shut it off and you're able to stand next to it and listen to it literally stop it's like bup, 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 bup. and on that last beat of my heart just like the engine that's that last little you know fire of the piston that last time at that last beat at that last second at that moment when i heard my heart stop my spirit left my body and i went up the roof of the garage the Bible says we have a spirit that lives inside our body. It's the eternal part of us. And that's why people have near-death or out-of-body experiences, the Bible says. So my spirit left my body, went up in the roof of the garage. I'm looking down from above. And all I can say is I was in perfect, perfect peace. I can't describe how amazing it felt in the ceiling. I was, I say I was having a party in the ceiling. I mean, there's lots of things I say, but I really, I don't have words to say how good it felt. So I'm up in the ceiling feeling like a million bucks, feeling the best I've ever felt in my life, literally having a party in the ceiling in perfect peace. 
and watching from above, listening to everything that's going on below. I could see the accident scene perfectly. I'm like maybe, you know, 14, 15, 16 feet right up into the very top of the roof, the ceiling of the garage. I can see all the people from the volunteer fire department standing around. As I'm looking down, I see the top half of my body sticking off from the truck, just where it was. The weirdest thing was I didn't even know that I was the person under the truck. I was so disconnected from the accident scene in such perfect peace that even though I could listen and see, I didn't know that was me underneath the truck. I didn't know it was my body anyway. I was just watching it all happen as an observer. So I'm observing from above in perfect peace. Leonard, the guy that I was working with, is on his knees. He's running his fingers through my hair, what turned out to be my hair. He's crying. He's apologizing. I'm listening to what he's saying. He's saying, I should be the one that's dead, not you. I'm such an old fool. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm listening to all that from above. Again, in perfect peace, I could care less. And on each side of Leonard, there was an angel. Leonard is about six foot one, six foot two. He's on his knees and there's an angel on each side of his body and their head stuck up approximately two feet taller than his head. So I'm saying approximately they had to be around eight feet tall, just based off a six foot tall Leonard. They're on their knees, just like he was one on the left, one on the right shoulder to shoulder. So if you can picture it, this Peterbilt truck had a a hood. It's a long nose, a conventional. The hood is now closed. There's a big bumper. There's a radiator shell. There's a headlights. Just the top half of them sticking out from underneath the middle of that truck. Leonard is bent over me crying. The angels are on each side of him on their knees, just like he was. You know, the head's bowed. Their hands were over. And the one from the driver's side is he reaches his arms over the angel and he puts his hands in the middle of the flat spot. And the one from the passenger side did the exact same thing. Angels are mentioned. 290 sometimes in the Bible I've researched now. And sometimes it mentions that they look like normal people. Sometimes it mentions they look, you know, extraordinary, supernatural. These two angels look like eight foot tall men, very, very muscular, long, long hair that went way down their back to where their belt was on their robes. It mentions sometimes they have, the angels have wings. Sometimes they don't. These angels didn't have wings. They just were like eight feet tall men, very muscular with white, shining robes there's a handful of times it mentions where i've read where it talks about how they're glowing emanating light whatever that's exactly what it was their robes look to be like glowing emanating white light i never got to see their faces because they're bent over they're touching uh, my body in the middle so i'm watching from above not knowing that's me and i'm just like oh look those angels are down there to help that guy that's nice it didn't even seem like a big deal it seemed very Oddly, it seemed very normal to me up in the ceiling, thinking about those angels helping the guy. So I'm just watching it all happen. They're not the emergency workers, the volunteer fire department, the first responders didn't do CPR because I have a massive chest injury. So I'm laying there with no heartbeat, no pulse at this point, several minutes. They're not going to do CPR because of massive chest injury. So Leonard is just crying over me. And it was at that moment that there's, I can look from above. I still have a it's been several years, but there's still like a picture burned in my memory. I can look above, see where all the people are standing, just quietly, respectfully talking. And it was right then that the last two people got there. Everybody else had come in from behind me. So if you can picture a shoebox shaped garage, so a big rectangular shaped implement garage, this Peterbilt logging truck is backed all the way into the back of the garage. My service truck is backed up to it. Nothing more than a big rolling toolbox. I'm working on that, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And every day I was backing in and out of the garage from the main entrance that the blacktop driver that comes in off the highway or the road. So I'm watching from above eight people. The majority of the volunteer fire department all came in through the main entrance. But oddly or interestingly, number nine and 10, the last two people to get there 
came in the back door in the opposite end of the garage. Now, it's a, it's a little detail. But when I got to the hospital a year later, I went and spoke at the volunteer fire department. They had their monthly meeting. They had roughly 30 people at the monthly meeting. I told the chief I was going to come to say thank you. He kept me off in a room off to the side. They started the meeting. He brought me out at a certain time. And so in a room of approximately 30 people, I went around. I picked out eight people that had come to the scene of the accident. Ten people came. So 10 people out of this group of 30 came to the accident a year earlier. I point out eight of the 10. And then number nine and 10, I pointed out and I said, you and you, the last two people I pointed out, I said, you came in the back door. And it was easy because it was the only woman it was a red-haired lady. And it was a gray-haired guy, the only gray-haired guy and the only red-haired woman. They came in the back door. Everybody else came in the main entrance. And again, it's a year later, and I asked in front of everybody, why did you come in the back door? Because it had been a year. At first, they couldn't even remember. You know, Then it jogged their memory. They talked about it. They, they said they'd missed the driveway, missed the main driveway, saw the flashing lights, came up a secondary gravel driveway that came up to the back of the shop and walked in the back door. It's a little detail, but it proves the real Bruce was in the ceiling uh, my carcass, if you will, was laying under the truck at that point. No heartbeat, no pulse. Six, eight, ten minutes, depending on which person of volunteer fire department you talk to. So six to ten minutes under the truck, no heartbeat, no pulse. And I watch from above as Shannon, that's the name of the red-haired lady, and this older guy come in the wrong door. They come up the driver's side of the truck. Leonard gets out of the way. She gets down between the angels. She's feeling for a pulse. There was a big guy, as I'm watching from above, in the passenger's front corner of the truck in what I would call farmer's bib, just those blue and white striped bibs. He had his arms crossed. There's a little guy next to him. And he says to her, uh, who's feeling for Pulse, Shannon, it's too late. He's he's passed. It's been, he's been dead several minutes, something along those lines. She ignores him. She's feeling for Pulse. She says, what's his name? Leonard says, Bruce Vanetta. And this woman starts to slap that guy in the face down there who's laying under the truck, saying, Bruce Vanetta, come back, come back. She's getting louder and louder. And... Everybody, all the other volunteer fire department people, all the other, you know, first responder stuff who were all standing around quietly, respectfully talking until this woman showed up and started slapping me in the face and saying, come back, come back. They all stopped talking. I'm watching from above. They all stopped and they all looked at her like she was crazy. And like, what are you doing? She's getting emphatic. She's getting louder and louder. And all of a sudden my spirit was slowly creeping down from where I was in the ceiling. I'm getting closer and closer. and when I was about halfway, it just seemed like it went really fast. And my spirit came back into my body. My heart miraculously starts. No heart, no medicine, no, no CPR, no nothing medical. But when she's calling my spirit back into my body, my spirit comes back in. My heart starts. And I go from feeling the best I've ever, ever felt in my entire life to coming back into uh, my body feeling the worst that I've ever felt in my entire life. So there's this horrendous, horrendous pain. And there's this realization that I realize I'm the guy underneath the truck. And it all comes back to me really quick. Oh, that's right. The truck following me. And I go, oh, four-letter word for fertilizer. Oh, blank. It's hurt so bad. I don't want it. I don't, I don't want the pain. It just hurts so bad. I want that piece. And when I basically made up my mind that I didn't want the pain, that I wanted to, to leave my body, go back to that piece, my heart stopped. My spirit left my body. I went back up to the roof of the garage. And again, I look down, I can see the lady, I can see, you know, Shannon, I can see the angels on each side of my body. And I know it's me now, but this time a tunnel opened up going out of the roof of the garage up at it, like at a 45 degree angle. 
the tunnel was probably, you know, it seemed like a million miles long, but I can tell you there was a bright, bright light on the end of the tunnel. I instinctively knew that heaven was on the end of the tunnel. And I knew that this Jesus that I called out to and said, Lord, help me, was there waiting for me. And so I got in the tunnel and I went towards the light in the tunnel at a very fast rate of speed. In fact, it doesn't make sense because I was in the spirit realm, but yet I felt G-force like like a, you would feel with a physical body. So I'm in the tunnel going towards the light at a fast rate of speed, feeling G-force, excited, happy to go to heaven, where somewhere behind me I can hear this and I hear Bruce and I come back, come back. I got, it felt like maybe halfway in the distance of that tunnel. I got sucked backwards. I'm still looking towards the light, but I got sucked backwards out of the tunnel. Now I'm back in the roof of the garage. I look down. I can see the angels. I can see the woman. I can see my body. I can see her slap me in the face. And my spirit came back out of the roof of the garage, back into my body. And my heart started miraculously again, now a second time. And at that point, all the pain came back. I looked on my left and I looked on my right for the angels and it was terrifying because I couldn't see them. I had just seen them twice from above, but when now I'm back in my body and I look on my left and my right, I couldn't see them. And which was scary. I couldn't understand why they left. Why couldn't I see them again? This horrible, horrible pain. You know, I've got this flat spot, the thought that there's nobody should be able to be alive and be able to look at their body like that. And it was in the middle of that pain and confusion and just craziness that, I believe God spoke to me, a very calm, still voice inside my head simply said, if you want to live, you're going to have to fight and it's going to be a hard fight. That's it. There was nothing else. There was no, you know, time for questions and answers, no Bible quoting, nothing. Just a simple, if you want to live, you're going to have to fight and it's going to be a hard fight. And I thought about like 2.2 seconds and I said, screw it. I don't want to live. I don't want to fight. It hurts too bad. My spirit left my body. My heart stopped. My spirit left my body. The third and final time, I went up the roof of the garage. Third and final time, the tunnel opened up going out of the roof of the garage for the second time. I got in the tunnel, happy to go to heaven. That's where I wanted to go. I was, again, feeling the G-force in the middle of the tunnel, going towards the bright light, excited when I could hear it. Bruce started to come back, come back. I got sucked backwards out of the tunnel that second time. I'm looking from above. I can see the angels. I can see the lady. Um, my spirit comes back from the ceiling, back into my body. Again, my heart starts miraculously the third time. Shannon's face was right here. I'm still laying on the creeper. Her face was right here on this side of my body. And she says to me, mister, you're on the verge of life and death. And I'm thinking, lady, you have no idea what you're even saying. And then she says, what do you have to fight for? Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? I couldn't fight for me because it hurt too bad and I just wanted to leave. But I could fight for my wife and I could fight for my four little kids. I thought about it. We had four children in three years because we have identical twins in the middle. And they were very young at this age and didn't want to fight for myself. It hurt too bad. I could fight for my wife and for my children. And so they ended up med flighting me to our state's largest trauma center. It took over two and a half hours from the point the accident happened until I got to the trauma center because of some things that had happened in the meantime. So from the point the truck fell on me until they operated on me was over two and a half hours. And I had five places that major arteries are completely severed. Doctors say, have told me that if you have one major artery completely severed, you've got eight to 10 minutes before you bleed out. I had five places, major arteries are completely severed. And now it's stretched out over two and a half hours from the point the truck fell on me until they operate on me. They're putting the blood in me at the, once they got me to the hospital, they're putting blood in me. The 
uh, transfusions and it was just leaking right back out into my intestine. When it was all said and done, they put in like, uh, I don't remember, it was over like two and a half times or three times some ridiculous amount what the body holds because it was just dumping in. But it was a long time before I ever got to the hospital, never do the transfusion. So I should have bled out multiple times before I ever got there. That proves that the angels are there doing whatever they're doing with the, the veins to keep me going. I called out and said, God, help me. And, you know, Jesus specifically, he sends the angels to do whatever they were doing to keep me going, to get me to the hospital. He sends the lady who I found out later, Shannon. She was 38 years old the day of my accident. I was 36 the day of the accident. She was 38. And she had been believing in Jesus for two months. She had grown up in a Catholic home, didn't believe in it growing up at all. Said, you know, you know, gets 18, moves out of her mom and dad's house, gets married, has kids, whatever, goes and gets higher education and you know basically comes to this she she felt she was too smart for religion didn't believe any of that junk but then in her 30s started to have some spiritual encounters couldn't make sense of it because she didn't believe in a spirit realm and she was basically on a spiritual journey looking for spiritual truth and came back to jesus that she had heard about as a kid prayed to him a couple months before my accident and was reading the bible just the gospels matthew mark luke and john for the two months before she set up the scene of my accident. So bottom line is a two month old, what they would say a two month old baby Christian, because she had been believing in Jesus for two months, came to the scene of the accident and prayed me back to life three times. So when she, we found it later, we met her, got to have a cookout with her and her husband and kids. And my wife and family got to meet them a couple different times, found out that when she showed up the scene of the accident and she was slapping me in the face, she was praying, asking God to bring you back to life. She had just read in the Bible where Jesus said, speak to the mountain with the faith of mustard seed. And she had read where Jesus said, those who believe in me will do the same, same things I've been doing. And so she prayed for Jesus to bring my spirit back to my body. And she was slapping and she said she was commanding my spirit to come back to my body. So three times this lady prayed me back to life. Some other miracles happened in the hospital where most of my intestines have been removed, small intestines, because that's where the truck found me. Spleen, pancreas, small intestines, duodenum, everything in there underneath where the truck fell, destroyed. God sent a man from across the United States to pray for me. And when he did, a miracle happened where doctors, it's all doctor documented how much intestine they removed. Adults have 18 to 20 some feet length of small intestine. I was down to approximately like two and a half feet. They removed everything else. Senate pathology, it's all in the records. The two pieces that they saved added up to, like I say, like two and a half, three feet. And one of those pieces died. Accident happened in November. One of those pieces died like in March. So now my intestines even smaller yet, not enough to live. I'm being fed intravenously. I lose 65 pounds in a matter of like three or four months. I'm literally starving to death, dying in the hospital. Couldn't understand why God sent angels, why God sent this lady to bring me back to life to let me die miserably in the hospital. I was mad at God, mad at, you know, I wasn't a good patient. I was being a bad patient in the hospital. And that's when God sent this guy from New York. He came and prayed for me. And when he did, a creative miracle happened. My pancreas was healed. My intestines were healed. I got back. Doctors say I have half my intestines now. So roughly 9 to 11 feet. So I went from, let's say, 2 feet or less than 2 feet to 9 to 11 feet of intestine. So again, a creative miracle. It's the whole reason why I'm alive. And I just travel around the United States and other countries as well sometimes, share this testimony and just tell people, look, I believe God is alive and well. I believe Jesus is God. I said as a child, Jesus is real. Hug me. He did. 
when the truck fell on me, you know, 30 some years later, I said, Jesus, help me. He sent the lady to pray me back to life. He sent the angels. He sent the guy to pray for me in the name of Jesus in the hospital. And so, again, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life telling people that I believe God is alive and well. I, I believe he loves us, even though we don't deserve it. And uh, I spent a life of partying, daily drug use. I sold drugs for years. I partied wide open, you know, for over 20 years. And I uh, made a lot of bad choices, hurt people, made a lot of bad decisions. And I believe that if God had sent angels for me, I'm the last person in the world that would deserve it. And if he'd do it for me, then he would do it for anybody. And that we can't earn a deserve his forgiveness. It's simply a free gift that he gives to us, that he offers to us for those that accept it. So I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people that's that testimony. And we do orphanage work in, uh, we've, we built the orphanage in Honduras. We help support, uh, do some work with another orphanage in Moldova. There's another orphanage, not the one that we built, but a completely different one that has a Spanish school, English school, a hospital clinic. We work with them extensively. We do a lot of work. We send monthly support with them. We give away books into prisons and jails. I speak at churches, schools, jails, wherever somebody opens the door for me to share this testimony. And so that's what I experienced on the day that the truck fell on me and I died and I just held out, God helped me. And he did. So I just want to encourage anybody watching, doesn't matter what's going on in your life, call it to God, call it to Jesus and tell him what's going on. He knows. Just tell him you need his help and I believe he'll help you. So that's my testimony.